HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we are just getting started. Find us at Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a hospitality platform that empowers restaurants to own their presence, profits, and relationships directly through their website. Opening soon listeners save 40% on the setup fee at getbento.com slash opening soon. That is G-E-T-B-E-N-T-O dot com forward slash opening soon. Welcome to Opening Soon on Heritage Radio Network. I am your host, Jenny Goodman. And I'm Alex McQuarrie. And if you're just tuning in to Opening Soon, we are a weekly show that's going through all the ins and outs of getting a restaurant open. So we're taking you through the steps from your idea to those doors actually opening soon. And today we are talking about moving and understanding a new market, basically uh, the city where your restaurant lies. Um, so sometimes the city where you cut your teeth and you know get your training may not be the best place for you to start your business, may not be best for the specific type of business that you're doing, um, whether it's personal, financial. Uh, when and how do you decide to move to a new market? Are you moving back home? Are you moving somewhere for your family? Um, perhaps it's a cost of living change. What are some of the challenge, uh, the challenges that different markets can face and some of the benefits of going, um, in Gavin's case, from a big city like New York City to Minneapolis with a burgeoning food scene? Yeah, so we're super excited to have Gavin Kaysen here today. He is the chef owner of Spoon and Stable. Demi, which is the newest one, yep. and Bellacore, yep. all in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, Gavin, if you are not familiar, you probably are. He was the executive chef at um, Cafe Danielle or Cafe Balud. And um, for, for eight years? Yeah, I was there for about eight years. Yeah, okay. that's right. 
for eight years. Well, and then moved back to start his restaurant group in Minneapolis. Yep. He is a two times James Beard award winner and part of the Bakus team. So we're super pumped to have you here and to be chatting. Thanks. Happy to be here. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what inspired you to make this big move. You know, you trained at some of the best restaurants in the world, mm. all over the place. You were in New York for almost a decade, and then you moved to Minneapolis and started a restaurant group. Yeah, I mean, so I grew up. I grew up in Minneapolis. I was actually born in LA, but grew up in Minneapolis. And and after having spent um, close to a decade here and thinking through what it is that I wanted to do and like what was next, um, there was so much more to it than just saying I'm ready to leave New York. I don't think I was ready to leave. I think it took me three years to answer that question if I was like ready to leave New York, <laughs> you know, because that's a big question that to, a big to question. answer. Um, and there's a lot that goes into it. And I think that I needed to feel ready to go. And I was ready with Minneapolis and I found the right space and it was the right timing. And and it sort of all worked out in my benefit. And since I grew up there, it was I was happy to be home. My wife and I have two children who were three and, the, three and five when we moved. They're now uh, seven and ten. But I wanted them to grow up near their grandparents and, yeah. and and be involved in that and see what that life was all about. I mean, I know my life and I know how busy it is and I know how disconnected I can be, you know, in certain times. And so this gave me an opportunity to, to be more connected. Had you ever cooked in Minneapolis before? Or? No, I mean, you know, I, I, I worked at a restaurant. So I worked at Subway. Okay. When I was 15 Like years Subway old. Sandwich Shops. Certified sandwich artist. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I love it. And it was, a, it, was a great, it was a great place to work. Music's on now. I know. There were parties starting at Roberta's, guys. I love it. I know. <laughs> um, Ambiance. So I worked at Subway, and then I worked at a fast, casual pasta restaurant called Pasta Time. Okay. Um, when you were 15 also? I think I was 16, 17. Wow. And then I worked at a, at a like lakeside restaurant called um, Green Heights Lake Club, I think it was called, or Captain Jack's, or maybe it was both. Maybe it changed ownership. I don't remember exactly. Um, I was in charge of doing fish fry. So basically it had been, you know, a couple decades since you actually worked. Yeah, and I don't, you know, like, and I, and I, you know, all of the chefs that are there today and that have truly, like, paved... The way for a lot of the Minneapolis chefs and, and St. Paul chefs, you know, I never worked with them yeah, or under them. I mean, I, I, I've, I know them. I'm friends with them. And I had always been friends with them. And we had done events together in New York City. They had come out and won Beard Awards. They had come out and we'd go out eating. Um, but I never worked for them. Interesting. And they, like, when you were like, okay, I'm moving back and opening these restaurants, the reception was good from the other chefs. It was. You know, now I mean, they're I, essentially the competition. Yeah. But, but, you know, listen, like, for me, the competition is so important and so healthy and i think that that drives cities like new york and san francisco and la it's like the more competition that you have the more drive and focus you are forced to practice on a daily basis yeah it also i think you know encourages the audience you know the consumer to be more interested in food the more yeah you know the, the higher the bar gets raised in the city the more it benefits everyone, really. Yeah, That's we right. talk about, we say this all the time in our business. It's like rising tides lift all ships. Sure. And it's like, yeah, you definitely want the competition to help change the consumer's mind, too. I think of what, so. Of what you can push for. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's an important part of the business, I think. And, and being able to see, you know, for, for me, when I moved back home, Spoon and Sable was the first one we opened, and it was it'll be five years old, November sixteenth. Mazel Tov. Thanks. That's a, yeah. that's a milestone. It's a big one. Yeah. Yeah, we're gonna have a big party and cool. you know have fun. And I mean, it was it was a it was a um, 
it was a fun restaurant to open and it's been a fun restaurant to run. So you, so you were saying before, like it was three years in the making that you were like thinking about mm-hmm. where your restaurant was going to be. And then we talked a little bit about this before and you actually did look in like all over the country, essentially. I did. I looked in New York. I looked in LA. Um, I looked in San Diego cause I had spent time there as right. well. And I had looked in Minneapolis, um, and everything, when I looked in Minneapolis, it just kind of clicked. Uh, it just made sense. It wasn't, it wasn't that I was trying to make this story of that I was going home. Right. Um, Did you have a checklist of sorts that it like meets family criteria, that it meets you know, what you want to do with your business and the type of restaurant that you're going to have? Like- it's a good question. I'm not, sure I, I'm not sure I was intelligent enough <laughs> to ask those right. questions to myself. It was just more like, where can I go and open a restaurant and, and what does that look like? And I think right. after the last five years, that's, you know, that's continued to evolve. And those questions that, that you just asked are questions that I ask myself right. all the time. And, and, and you know, as we grow, we start to think through those things. But, you know, it's such a fascinating business. Like, you don't know if it's actually going to work, right? right? You open it and you're like, I hope, I mean, I remember saying to my wife, if this doesn't work, we have to leave Minnesota. We're not going to like... Why would you? Why would you? Yeah. Because I mean, if one restaurant doesn't work there, the market might not be big enough to like go back and try try again. again. You know, I mean, you know, in New York, maybe it's big enough where you can do that and you can try again. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would have been able to like turn around and be like, okay, that failed. But now let's try again six months later. Interesting. And see if that works. It's like, I'd rather just say, okay, that doesn't work. Let's go. Yeah, doesn't work. Let's let's move somewhere else. Yeah. I don't know. What did you do to hedge that risk? I mean, did you like do a lot of, you said you like went and found the space. Did, had you researched the neighborhood? Was there something that you felt like really good about it or is it (laughs) a little bit, he's shaking his head. I mean, honestly, (laughs) I I found the space. Um, A friend of mine named Eric Dayton had a restaurant across the street, has a restaurant still there across the street called The Bachelor Farmer. Shout out to Eric. Yeah, it's a great it's a great restaurant. He's a great guy. Um, he comes from a wonderful family. His father was the governor of the state at the time. Oh, cool. Um, and so that that helped me understand that neighborhood and just knowing how Eric is and knowing that he invested in that neighborhood gave me the confidence to know that that was like a neighborhood that's going to grow. Okay. Um, that was the extent of my research. Wow, that's pretty ballsy. <laughs> I mean, then, that's yeah. I and then and then. I, I fell in love with the space. It was, you know, it's an old horse stable that was built in 1906. Ah, hence um, the name Spoon and Stable. Yep. yep. And it was, it was uh, 6,400 square feet. It has 90 feet of skylight from wow. floor to ceiling. It's 26 feet tall. So it's this huge space. And what I loved is that the facade of the building is very small and narrow. Mm-hmm. So visually, when you look at the restaurant's front space, you think it's a small, narrow dining room. Right. And you walk in and it's just like... In this like grand room. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty awesome. I know we need to come visit now. I'm like wanting to put Minneapolis on the list of places to go next. It's on the list. So, you've si- so you find the space and you sign the lease and you're still living in New York and technically employed with Danielle and the Dynex group. Yeah. And so what happens next? Like how do you find investors and how did, how did that all shake out with, with Danielle? Yeah, I mean, you know, Danielle was... He was an incredible and has always been an amazing mentor uh, to me throughout this whole process. I mean, we spent three years talking about what this would look like and, and how that exit would be. And I, <clears throat> I think that that's something that I, that I learned more than anything else when I was mm-hmm. with him was that how do I find a way to leave Cafe Belud in a very respectful manner yeah. and leave it better than how I found it? And what does that look like from a staffing perspective? What does that look like from an organizational perspective? 
and how do I leave his organization with that respect that I that I desire? And instead of me making up those assumptions, I just asked him how to do that and what that looked like. That's and a big lesson too, but that speaks to like the kind of mentor that Danielle is, that you yep. felt confident enough to be like, I'm gonna tell you this is my plan and what do I do next? And he was he's he's always been open to having that discussion. I just think that, and I understand this, you, you fear to have that discussion with your boss, whoever that person is, yeah. Danielle or whomever, because you don't want to get to this point where all of a sudden, you know, you're sort of pushed out right. too early and you're not ready to go, but you've got to go because they figured out a different plan. They found someone in the meantime. Yeah. Right. And I think that, you know, you have to just, I mean, for me, it was just like, I trust you as a, as my leader and as my, as my boss, but also as a friend, what do I do? Yeah. And how do I make this happen? So when I found the space, first I found the space, which is always hard because yeah. then you fall in love with the space. Right. And then thankfully I was able to attract and find investors, which, you know, as I said to you before, like for me, when you find that, Michael White, I remember reading an interview with him and it was like, you feel like you're struck by lightning when you mm -hmm. find the right group. And that's how I felt with my core group. Um, and so I signed the lease. The morning I signed the lease, the afternoon, I resigned officially with Danielle, mm -hmm. which he knew was was coming. Was coming, yeah. Um, and then we set everything up to be ready to go. My last day was May thirty first, five plus years ago now. Um, and I moved home the next day, and then we started the next to build. Day. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, and by so the way, he, Gavin built out Spoon and Stable in eight months, right? Yeah, I took the space which over is... July seventh, and we opened up November sixteenth. It's really impressive. So I, faster. I don't think that that would possibly happen in New York. What are what are some of the other benefits of building? I know you did not you were not part of a build when you were here in New York City, but I'm sure that you've had friends that were doing it while you were here. And yeah, I mean, we re, we renovated Cafe Balud when I was here, okay. so they 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 gutted the entire kitchen and we redid the whole kitchen. Okay, uh, they gutted the actually they gutted the restaurant, so that was a big build out for us. That took a couple of months. Okay, um, so I saw it from that perspective, and I remember the difficulty because our gas meter was turned off when it was supposed to never be turned off. Um, <laughs> God. And so as and then you had to go back through. Yeah, yeah. So my, my team was like down at a coffee shop every day. And then if I wouldn't get the call from the gas company by four o'clock, I would just say, okay, you can go home now. But if, you know, if the gas just company waiting. comes at two and like flips that switch on, we've got to be ready to go for service tomorrow. Um, so did that, that happen one day? Like one day they just came yeah. and turned it on. And How many guys days? One day they came in at three thirty. Uh, it was like nine days or twelve okay. days or something. I mean, it was <laughs> oh bad. My God. And then one day they came in at three thirty. They flipped the switch on. I called the team. They came down. We made, we cooked the whole dinner or the whole menu for the for the staff. Trained everybody, and then we opened up the next day. Wow! And did like one hundred eighty five covers. It was oh just my God, nuts. That you is know, nuts. so New York. I mean, that story you know says that. For me, that every you know every second in New York is rent. It's you know it people's is. livelihoods. Is that different? You feel like in Minneapolis that you can take your time a little bit. And I mean, I don't think it's necessarily different. It's just not as expensive, yeah. right? Um, and that's probably I guess so. You know, in that respect, yes, it's different. I mean, Demi, as an example, our newest restaurant. You know, that restaurant was completed and finished for six weeks before I opened. Right. And so Not waiting on permits, you were just waiting for the right time. I was, I was waiting for the right time. I was waiting to, um, we really wanted to be thoughtful about our training process. We wanted to do it differently than how we had done it in the past. Um, we consciously put 
the amount of money it would take to do that into the budget ahead of time versus reacting to it. It was a right. very proactive process. Um, and that allowed us an opportunity to have some amazing conversations with the team and really just like a, an incredibly heartfelt training program that, that to this day we're trying to figure out how do we like mimic that in everything that we do moving forward? Um, because there was a combination of just like the right people and timing and everything else that goes with it that was important. Yeah. And speaking about like staff and training, you, so you never worked in Minneapolis before. Mm-hmm. You're coming straight from New York and opening you a restaurant. At Subway. <laughs> you worked at Subway <laughs> like yeah. decades prior. I'm sure you weren't hiring the people from Subway for your fine dining right. <laughs> restaurants at this point in time. So tell me, tell us a little bit about like how did you find your staff and your partners and your front of house? Mm-hmm. Did you have to import people from other cities or what was that? What was that process like? You know, we were pretty lucky. I mean, when we announced that we were moving back home, um, thankfully, New York Times and a lot of press took to it. And that yeah. sort of helps. Yeah, that definitely helps. <laughs> um, and that, that opened up a different world for me. And, and we ended up just getting flooded with resumes. Wow. Uh, from people all over the country, really. And, and what, what was more fascinating to me was that how many people are from Minneapolis and St. Paul, but are living somewhere else and were, people were interested to move in moving home. Interesting. And so we find a lot of that. I mean, Adam Ritter, who's our chef of Demi, he moved to he moved uh, back home to Minneapolis. He's from St. Cloud. He spent time in Singapore. Um, he's he spent time all over the world working. Um, Chris Nye, the executive chef of our company, he worked with me at Cafe Blue in New York, and then he was the chef de cuisine for Fabio Trabocchi at Fiola in D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Lawrence. Was he from? He was from Minneapolis. He's from well, South Minneapolis. Okay. Yep. Lawrence is actually from Britain. But I've known him for 10 years. He worked with one of my best friends in the UK. His wife is from Minnesota. They moved yeah. to Minnesota. Oh, that's so funny. You know, so yeah. it's just like all of these kind of like little connections that have brought people back to Minneapolis and allowed us an opportunity to hire them yeah. um, and have them be a part of our team has been, has been pretty remarkable. Yeah, because I would imagine that would be scary going to like a new market and having spent, you know, almost a decade of your career forging these relationships totally. with people who are here and being part of this network and then being like, oh my God, I have to hire a whole new team and try to like get my vision. I feel like that would right. be so scary. And now you employ over 200 people, you said, right? We do, yeah. That's impressive. That is impressive. It's a big responsibility. Yeah. 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 Do you feel like you're getting more people that are coming? Are you getting people that are coming just to work in Minneapolis that maybe don't have ties that are we are James uh, our chef of Spoon and Stable he's he is uh, from he's from New Jersey spent spent about seven or eight years with Michael Mina's group moved to us moved to Minneapolis from San Francisco um, so yeah we we absolutely have people who are moving uh, to us to work with us which is great yeah. and inspiring and and there's more of a sense of responsibility that I carry when I see that and, and feel that because oh, it's scary to employ people. Yeah. <laughs> like it yeah. is. You it's brought them, yeah, now yeah. Bring them well, and it's, it, you know, and, and the goal is that, you know, I've gotten past this, this process of trying to compare our city versus other cities. And I, I say this often to our team. It's like our competition is not the restaurant down the street. That's not the way that we should ever look at that because all of us, like we were talking about earlier, it's like that helps the business. That helps right. all of us. Our competition is other cities like Chicago and New York and L.A. And we are a B market city. There's really no way around that. And that's okay. And we should own that and we should be proud of it. Mm-hmm. But if somebody's going to sit down and determine if they want to, you know, let's say they're from Iowa, 
and they want to move either to Nashville, Portland, or Minneapolis, how do we draw them to Minneapolis right. and what does that look like? And I think it's more than just what's on Instagram and what's on Twitter and what's on our website. I think there needs to be that word of mouth that's out there that like, listen, this is a really great company to work for. And this is a really important uh, restaurant that they're building. You should go and check it out. And talking about that, I, I want you to talk a little bit about what you guys are doing to, to make it different and, and to you know sort of give back to your circle and give back to your teams. Do you think it's um, do you think that's been possible by being where you are versus a New York or an LA? You know, it's a great question. I think it's I think it's I don't know if it is comparatively because I never tried it as often here because right. I don't know if it was as relevant when I lived here. Um, but I do know that being back in Minneapolis allows us that opportunity because we have the time and the resources to do it. I think, you know, we can close like Spoon, all the restaurants close at the same time mm-hmm. every year. And we do this huge conference for the restaurant group and we bring in different speakers from around the country. And Ashley Christensen came and spoke and Andrew Zimmern comes and speak. We had a Anthony Rudolph who ran Journey here yeah. in town. He came and spoke. And so, you know, we had all of these wonderful people come in and talk to our teams about all sorts of different things. And it's basically six TED Talks. And, you know, that... For, for for me, that is our investment back to them to say, you know, we care about you as a human and we want you to be a successful person and we realize that you will not be with us forever and that's okay. But when you're ready to leave, how do we start to make that process a little bit more sustainable for you and for us? You know, this notion in our profession um, that a two-week notice is okay is a, yeah. is a really frustrating process and it's not frustrating because... I don't want to lose the talent or because I can't replace them or whatever. That's not why. It's because let's say you work for me for two years and you give a two-week notice. Do you really val- Do you really right. think that your value is only worth two weeks? Right, that percentage of yeah. it's not. time it's that you worth, spent with me. Yeah, right. it's worth a lot more. And I, you know, I spent a lot of time with Danielle. Hence the three-year. On that. The yeah. three-year and, advance notice. <laughs> yeah, and, and it means, it means yeah. a lot to me. And I think that I, I, I empathize and understand that. You know, there's the opposite side of it, which is you give an, a one or two or three month notice and you're like pushed away from the group. Right. Yeah. So there has to be a little bit of a medium to that and a little bit of a, a neutral ground because we've done that too. We've had people give notice and it's like, you know, the next, you, you've already checked out. Yeah, so what you're are we already do? done. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, as an employer, it is really hard. Two weeks is, is not enough time. And it, I agree with you. It's like not enough time for a transition or for anything and, and not even the replacement. But I agree with you. It's just sort of like, why would you burn that bridge when you could have this like thoughtful exit plan with people? Um, so yeah, I always encourage a longer, a longer notice. And it worked in your benefit too, because Danielle and mm-hmm. Thomas Keller are now mentors and mm-hmm. part of your restaurant group. So yep. yeah. I mean, I think people shouldn't sell themselves short. That's to listen up to that young cooks. Don't out. Yeah. I mean, if you, yeah. you know, it's like whenever you read all the advice from different chefs, I mean, I feel like the a common thread is patience, patience, you know, yeah. it's like patience and repetition and all these things. And it's so, so true, but it's not just patience in a kitchen and cooking. It's like, have patience for the process too. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't need to be, don't worry about being a 30 under 30 of whatever publication or whatever the award is. Like, don't, don't worry about that. I mean, Thomas always says this, but he's like, look, the awards are a celebration of what we did yesterday, not what we're doing today or what we're going to do tomorrow. And I think that that's an important thing to remember because as much as you want to celebrate what it is that you, that you did to win that award, mm-hmm. you have to remember like what it took to get there. Right. right. And it was a lot of hard work and a lot of patience. Right. I think a lot of times too, the people don't, um, 
people don't leave for the right reasons or at the right time. I think it's they wait too long, perhaps, until they've become they've gotten to a place where they're not happy anymore, and mm-hmm. they're, you know, I think that should happen much earlier. Or you, you know, you you plan your exit for for very different reasons, and then I think you can have at that point the right conversation with your superiors. Yeah, yeah and I think it's on yeah. us as the employers to give them the opportunity to be vulnerable and have sure. that conversation with you. If 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 you're if you're not allowing that conversation to come to you, then the two-week notice might be on you. Right. Um, but if you're allowing that conversation to always come to you in a way that you're willing to talk through it. Right. I mean, I, you know, I, I remember at Cafe Blue, Aaron Bludorn, who was the chef who took over from me. He was my sous chef. I remember when he resigned. And it, I mean, he resigned like a year and a half after he started. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to accept your resignation because I don't <laughs> think you understand what it is that you can do and where it is that you can go because he said oh, I'm going to go I'm going to go cook at EMP and then I'm going to go cook at you know per se whatever wherever he was going to go cook and I said so you're going to be a cook in four places and then you want to go home to Seattle and be an owner right so where do you pick up the traits of owning a restaurant cooking in four well, different restaurants the food at different restaurants right. right and it's like I, I think you need to become a chef right he says well how can I become a chef and I said let me worry about that and then I left the room <laughs> And he tried to resign again. And I said the same thing when he tried to get I, I love like, it. Don't it, try to quit on Gavin. I'm Keys. like, it's not going to happen. <laughs> you can't quit. Right? Yeah. And then, and then when I left cafe, I remember taking him out for dinner that night. And I said, I resigned today. You're the chef. Yeah. And he was like, what? And I said, I told you. Remember when I told you a couple years ago? I'm like, totally. this is what I was talking yeah. about. Like I, you know, and you can see that in certain people. You can see that spark and that energy and that drive. And yeah. it's like, you have to it's, it's not that I ever, I didn't ever want to lose Aaron because I, I saw that. I never wanted to lose him because I knew that he could be better than I was. Oh, and it's yeah. like, how do you train that person to be better than you are? And the, the way to do it is to say, let me teach you. Yeah. Right. But also, yeah, I mean, I, I agree too that that the assumption that you've learned everything is most most of the time can be you know incorrect. So you, there's so many other things that you need to learn. Yeah. And the only way to get those things is sometimes through tenure, but but by staying somewhere and, and asking a lot of questions and the right questions and um, not necessarily just hopping for food. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, curiosity is always a driver of success to me. Tell us, we talked a lot about the, the staff and the team. Tell us a little bit about the differences of the consumer in Minneapolis versus New York. I mean, for, for us, it's been a lot of the same. And I've cooked for a ton of New Yorkers while in Minneapolis, yeah, which sure. is great. Um, you know, I see them coming back and guests that I used to cook for at Cafe Blue on a regular basis are in town for business. And, you know, they reach out and we get to we get to see them and cook for them. And that's a lot of fun. Um, you know, I think for all three restaurants are very different. I mean, Spoon and Stable is obviously the first one. So it's kind of the baby um, and Spoon opened up in, a, in, in an energy that I, I honestly never, ever expected. Um, and Belcour is in a suburb, so it's a little quieter in the winter, and it's sort of bonkers in the summer because it's right on a lake. Right. And then Demi is the newest, the newest creation, which is this 20-seat tasting menu restaurant, which has been an interesting concept to sort of watch evolve with our clientele and with our guests because it's there's nothing about that restaurant that is atypical. There's no menu on the website. We don't tell you how many courses you're going to eat. Um, and yet it sells out in five minutes for the month. Yeah, for the month yeah. in advance. So and you're going to be in Minneapolis. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's also prepay, right? I mean, oh, okay. you, know, you yeah. right. prepay for your reservation right. there, which is which is different than what... Right. And, and I will tell you 100% wholeheartedly, I never would have expected to say that yeah. had you asked me five years ago if but that sure. will exist. Did so you get pushback super, on that? Oh, sorry, go ahead. ahead. 
Now, is, did you get pushback from clients and guests on that at first? Because um, I mean, like we're used to it here. Mama Fuka has been doing the prepay. Yeah. I think part for, of this is that it's yeah. it's it's, rare, it's rather affordable. I think for right. Yeah, and I mean, we we haven't had. Sorry, we haven't had pushback um, that that has been public or very noticeable. Mm-hmm. So we've we've done this program at Spoon and Stable called the Synergy Series for three years, where we bring in different chefs from around the country, and that has always been a prepay, and that's been very expensive. I mean, that's four ninety five a person. Wow. Um, yeah. And we give twenty percent of our profits to local charities, and so we've given. I mean, in that program in three years, we gave away close to one hundred fifty thousand dollars. Wow. Well. So that was always a prepay experience, and yeah. I, I believe that looking back on it now, I believe that that kind of trained our, our, our guests to say it's okay to prepay for your experience. Mm-hmm. You know I mean? It, you have to build the trust for people. Right, like for I don't sure. think Dave could have opened up Co with prepay right away. No. You know, it's like he, he needed to build the trust with all of his other restaurants right. and clientele. We all, we all have to do that. As yeah. great as we might think we are in our own cubicle of a kitchen, yeah. uh, it's the people who's in the chair that you need to impress and restore on a daily basis. Right. Cool. Let's take a quick break um, and we'll come back with more interview with Gavin. Cool. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, helping restaurants own their presence, profits, and relationships directly through their website. Mary, along with her husband, mother, and sister, had an idea to sell Vietnamese spring rolls at a farmer's market. They found a kiosk in Chicago's French Market in 2009 and started Saigon Sisters. In the years since, they have grown to include three locations and a sister restaurant, Bang Chop Thai. Saigon Sisters is one of 5,000 restaurants that drives high margin revenue directly through their website, thanks to Bento Box. Visit getbento.com slash opening soon today and get 50% off your new website setup fee. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Dana Cowan, and I'm the host of Speaking Broadly here on HRN. Every week, I conduct intimate interviews with the brilliant, powerful women in the food world. We discuss their lives, their careers, and the ways in which they navigate the world at large. You can find Speaking Broadly wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. So we're coming back from our break with uh, Gavin Kaysen, chef owner at Spoon and Stable, Demi and Bellacourt in Minneapolis. And um, we were just talking a little bit about what it means to, to be a restaurant and, you know, how it is that you're treating your guests. So Gavin has this notion. Tell us a little bit about this, like, you know, where the word comes from with restaurant and how you impart restore into your philosophy. So the, the word restaurant comes from the word restoration or to be restored. <clears throat> so one of the things that we talk about a lot, especially at Demi, is that you know, the first thing you get is a broth, and whether it's warm or cold, depending on the season outside, the intention of that broth is to sort of start that restoration process. And when we go out to eat, we often think of restaurants as rateable. Actually, not just going out to eat, but a lot of experiences we yeah. think as rateable. Right. And, you know, we what we try to explain and what we try to get people to understand is that we're not worried about what you think of when you come to rate us. What we want you to do is come and think of it as a restorable situation and a restorable opportunity. And that's really on the guest. I mean, we will create the environment. We'll create the dishes. We will give you all of the ingredients to feel that. Um, but you have to sort of just like be in the moment and be a part of that process to be able to accept it. And, you know, that's part of the restaurant experience. And I think that 
as restaurants have evolved in the last 10, 15, 20 years, and especially even more so with social media um, being so uh, you know, obvious of what's happening in restaurants, you can kind of create a little bit of an illusion of how this restaurant is in a different market. And then people go there and they already have a little bit of a preconceived notion yeah. of what it should be. And, you know, that's why at Demi, we don't have a menu on the website and we don't tell you how many courses. We don't want you to value the experience before you get to us. We don't want you to count the amount of courses that you have while you're eating the experience with us. We want you to just sit and enjoy and relax. And by the way, Demi is like, talk about a value. I mean, Gavin was saying the there's two tasting menus, yeah. essentially. One is $95 and the other one's $125. And it's, it's anywhere from like, you know, 12 to 16 courses. Yeah, but I mean, so it's a value. That and is how many people value. do you serve a night? We serve forty people a night, so we do two hundred people a week. It's closed Mondays okay. and Tuesdays. Yeah, it's a fun. I mean, you know, it's funny, right? It's a twenty seat restaurant. As a young cook, I mean, that's always your dream. I'm going to build right. a twenty seat restaurant. Right. Okay, so when you grow up, you realize that that makes no money. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's like it's, it's fun. It's a yeah. great pipe dream, but right. you know, how do I pay the bills? Right. Um, yeah. It's also, like you said, I think in the same vein as the ticketing, that it would be a hard thing to present necessarily as your first offering to I think so. a city of any kind, really big or small. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I, and I think, too, you know, from a team perspective, we, weren't, we would not have been ready with, the, with a team to say, okay, now let's, let's open this up and let's do it. Right. Um, we needed time, too. Yeah. But you achieved that romantic notion of your 20 seat restaurant. So I know it's there. It's, it's, I love it. It's so, it's so much fun. It's so fun to just be with the guest every night and to be able to talk to them and watch their reaction and, you know, watch their enthusiasm and their excitement and, and genuinely like proud that a restaurant of that nature can exist and, and succeed in our town. I think that that's important. I mean, I think any city, I don't care what city you are in the world, if a restaurant like that opens and succeeds, or closes and fails, everybody feels it. Because it's a statement of what's happening in that city. Sure. And it's a statement of what's happening in that food culture. And I, I'm not saying that because Demi's mine. I'm saying that because I believe the, the clientele in, in the Twin Cities are, are accepting and loving the opportunity to be able to cherish that. Yeah, well, clearly if it's selling out in five minutes every month. So, yeah, that yes, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And you have a, a new venture. I guess it's not brand new, but you have a catering arm. So, like, mm-hmm. you really have this robust, robust restaurant group now with several different types of properties and, yeah. um, and revenue streams. So tell us a little bit about that. So that's called KZ Provisioning. It's a, it's a partnership between Andrew Zimmern and myself. Um, and we started it three years ago as a dream to help uh, fuel pro athletes. Mm-hmm. And so a couple of a couple of my really close friends play for the Minnesota Wild and our the pro hockey team. And it kind of just, or honestly, it organically happened. I mean, they can't. They would eat at Spoon all the time. I would go and visit them at practice. I'd go to the games and I'd bring my kids, and then I'd watch what they'd eat, and I would question why they were eating what they were eating. And that sort of became that sort of started this conversation of well, this is what's available to us, and I quite. And then I said, why can't we make something available to you? And that's how the company started. So our first client was the Minnesota Wild, and we're on our third season with them now. Um, and we just started, uh, we announced actually last night, which is why I'm in New York, 
uh, that we're partnering with the Minnesota Timberwolves, the basketball team uh, as well. And so we have kitchens dedicated in either in both of their practice facilities. Okay, so it's not like catered out of a commissary or it's one not. of the restaurants. Nope, we yeah. cook everything in front of the players. Oh, so cool. the players walk in during the players walk in first thing in the morning and say, Chef, can you make me an egg white scrambled with avocado and spinach? Mm-hmm. And then they go and they do a workout. They come back in 20 minutes and breakfast is ready for them or five minutes, whenever they want it. Um, so we do breakfast and lunch for them every single day during practice days. And then during game days, we do breakfast, lunch, pregame, postgame. And then we cook for the families in a separate room in between, like ha- at halftime or in between the periods. And then we also offer cooking classes for the families as well oh, during the season. Cool. So interesting. Do you yeah. guys so work with like dietitians or any? We do. We work with, uh, at the Timberwolves, uh, Dr. Robbie Sicka is, is our main contact and our main doctor who we work with. Uh, we have the Mayo Clinic as a partner for nutrition, for our nutritional information. And so for the basketball team, as an example, they were a Fitbit in their shorts. So eight minutes after the game is over, so they play Brooklyn tonight, eight okay. minutes after the game is over tonight, yeah. I will know nutritionally how every player is working and feeling when the game is over. And then by that, if they were to come home tomorrow, I would know what to cook tomorrow. They're that traveling. so cool. They're going to Charlotte, so I don't have, we don't have to, but... We do plan their meals when they're on the road. So we will take all of that information. We'll cross-analyze that with Robbie, our doctor, and the nutritional team at the Mayo Clinic. And we'll make sure that the food that we've chosen for them on the next city yeah. is the right food that they should be eating to fuel their body to get ready for the next practice and then the next game. That so is we're trying, That is wild. Yeah, so you're using, like, it's like data-driven. It's data-driven. It's yeah. technology-driven. It's nutritional-based. And it's, and it's something that, you know, I was saying to the coach, Saunders, last night, it's like my my – the core of my job is to take care of people, yeah. right? I am in the hospitality yeah. business. I mean, it goes through that whole How do you restoration. Guys bring this yeah. to mass market. I, I want this. I know. Yeah, <laughs> no? I don't know. I don't, we'd I love to figure it out. Leave the gym and like know what I should be eating tomorrow for lunch. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. really yeah. really cool. It's I mean, it's amazing, and it's amazing. Our, our goal, um, Gerson is the the president of basketball operations for the for the Wolves, and he says it best. He says our goal is to know the players better than they know themselves. Yeah. So and what that's true. How does that work? So somebody walks in and says. I want an egg white omelet, and you said, "Sorry, buddy, but you got to eat." This. <laughs> well, so there's there's actually <laughs> right? stickers. A- there's there's a green, a yellow, and a red sticker okay. on the food. Okay, and so we know what they should eat based off of that. And the the cheat sticker is the okay. red one, right? So they know if they're going to take whatever that is in that bag that has a red sticker, they understand that that's a cheat. It's okay. Right. You can do that. It's not a bad thing to make that ha- to have that happen. Right. We don't want them to ever feel shameful of that. We just want them to understand what it is that they're putting in their body and what that will result to. Right. And if we can, if we, you know, we don't know, right? But if we can help uh, push their career an extra year or an extra two years, you're talking about millions yeah, and millions yeah, of dollars. That's true. Right. And you're talking yeah. about health yeah. and you're talking about wellness. And good sleep is incredibly important. The ESPN had a great story a couple of weeks ago about how important sleep is and how it's sort of actually like the worst kept secret secret in the NBA of how much these guys don't sleep. Yeah. And it's an incredible story. From but the, your training so much or? From traveling. Yeah. From traveling. You know, because they have, if they play a game, they have a cortisol buildup. Right. Right. And then they get off. And when you're making cortisol, you're not making melatonin. Right. <laughs> so and now you, you can't come down. Yeah. And if you have too much cortisol, it's like, it's terrible for you. It's terrible for yeah. you. So, so how you do they bring their sleep. body, you know, how do they bring their body down when they're done playing at 11 p.m.? Right. And now they have to get onto a plane I mean, this probably, at midnight yeah. and then they land in a city at 3 a.m. Right. You know, how, how does that happen? 
So it's right. our job to fuel them to know that that's going to happen analytically by data. We understand that will happen. Yeah. So what is the fuel we can provide to their body to make sure that they are then ready for that practice that morning or or the game? And you know we work really close with the coaching staff. Um, it's it's an amazing business that I never knew existed. Yeah, it's, and yeah. it's it's been a lot of fun to watch um, and be a part of it. I mean, it is sports is a leadership driven business with a win loss column. Right. And it's, I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, chefs probably need this too, because chefs are notoriously don't get much sleep because they're working late hours mm-hmm. and long hours with high cortisol. It's like, it could all come full circle. Yeah. It's and really watch cool. Watch how this goes. Yeah, Super yeah. cool. Um, awesome. Let's, we always like to do a little lightning round. So we're starting to get tight on time. So let's get into that. Okay. Um, tell us the best part about cooking in New York. Best part about cooking in New York, probably the 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 drive and the passion that everybody has that's around you, from the porter to the general manager. I just sort of love that consistent drive. It's really driven through competition. Yeah, and then now that you're back in Minneapolis, what's the best part about cooking there? Uh, the seasonality. I mean, in I mean that in a really respectful way. Like yeah. the seasons there are so dramatic. Yeah. You know, and it will go from today. It's a beautiful fall day. I mean, when I'm trick or treating next week with my kids, I know it's going to be probably 25 degrees. <laughs> Already? Yeah. Come on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be cold. I think we have snow coming next week, so it's very dramatic. Wow. Right. But I love cooking with those seasons. I mean, they're just so. And I can put my arm out, and in 25 minutes, I'm at some of the best farms in the country. But what does it look like in the winter? Because actually that was something we were thinking about before. I'm like, you know, that must be a really interesting thing to be mm-hmm. coming from, you know, New York and then not knowing what like the seasonal, necessarily what the seasonal ingredients and farms are. And yeah, the winters totally are really thing. harsh. Yeah. Yeah, they're really, really tough. I mean, they, they, it, they're not, they're not like easy to like live through per se. Yeah. But the, the difference is, is that we embrace it. Mm-hmm. You know, and you have to get outside and the sun is shining and it's a bright blue sky. And yes, it's 10 degrees outside, but it's gorgeous out. But, yeah. and people but also still- practically, is there, are there those farms that are in arm's reach away? Is there anything there? There are. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, you know, they've, they've figured out a way to work through it. Okay. Yeah. And diners still show up when it's 10 degrees out? Listen, last April, two Aprils, so two years ago in April, we had a snowstorm. Uh, we had 26 inches of snow. It snowed 52 hours straight. Jesus. And Spoon and Sable did 225 people that night. No. We valeted a snowmobile. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Yes. You're like, that valet guy was winning Minnesota- that night. Oh, yeah. Minnesota proud boy to understand. <laughs> that, that is awesome. Yeah, it was cool. It. Uh, favorite business book? 11 Rings. It's actually a sports book, but you should read it. It's an amazing, it's ama- it's an amazing book on leadership. Okay. Uh, it's an amazing book that talks through, uh, Phil Jackson wrote it. <clears throat> I really like it. Okay. Uh, what about a business resource that everybody should know about, whether it's a person, a class, uh, or another you know, periodical podcast? Um, <laughs> yeah, your podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I think there's a lot of great resources out there, but I think everybody has to sort of figure out, I mean, for me, the most important resource is curiosity, which you have in, inside of you. You know, you can listen to, and that should make you curious to listen to podcasts, to read different books, to ask questions, all of what we've kind of been talking about. Right. I like that. Yeah. Because a lot of you, you have to be curious to get the knowledge and ask for help. Yeah. Um, Tell us who you're a mentor, inspirational leader in the hospitality industry. That's an easy one. Danielle. Danielle. Yeah. I mean, Danielle has always been a a great resource for me and he's always been a huge, um, a huge mentor. And tell us, what was your biggest surprise when you were moving back to Minneapolis? Hmm, that's a great question. I mean, 
<clears throat> I think my biggest surprise was how um, well received we were when we got there. I guess I just didn't expect people to care that we were moving there. Or, it could, or it could be like, hey, this big shot thing's going <clears throat> to come back here. And, yeah. You know, yeah. I was the afraid of that. In town, right? yeah. so. I was afraid of people thinking like, oh, this New York chef's going right. to move back home and teach us how to do it. And it's like, that was... That has never, ever been my goal, and we sort of worked hard to make sure that that wasn't the perception, but it could have very easily had right. been that perception. Um, and, and so I, I'm, surprised that, I'm surprised that we have three restaurants and two and a catering company in five years. I'm surprised That's that impressive. you know we have 200-plus employees. I'm surprised that um, the restaurants are busy on a Tuesday. I mean, there's nothing more humbling in the world yeah. than to look outside at your restaurant on Tuesday at 9 o'clock, and it's still full. Yeah. When it's 10 degrees outside. <laughs> With the snowmobile. With the snowmobile outside. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love yeah, that. I know. Would you ever come back and open a business in New York City? Yeah, I probably would. I mean, I, I, I don't, I would never rule it out because I think the opportunities are always fascinating to to understand. But in any opportunity, I sort of look at it and understand. I, I just want to like understand if it's a compelling thing for me to do. Right. Um, I moved away from the city and I moved back to Minneapolis for a specific reason to be with my family more and to give them the opportunity to be with their grandparents more. And so um, it has to be a pretty compelling reason for me to know that that I would see them less for that reason. Helping the Knicks. Helping, <laughs> helping, the Knicks. helping fuel the Knicks. That, that could work. That could work. We'll work no. on the Timberwolves first. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, is there non-competes with that? No. This is so interesting. I know, right? I know. So I'm, much to break down. I know. Yeah. We'll have a whole other show just about this. Um Cool. So let's uh, shout out restaurants or bars that are opening soon. Anybody you want to shout out? I don't know who's opening soon. Anywhere. It could be in Minneapolis. It could be... I don't read enough about everybody's openings. It's too much going on. Too much going on (laughs) in your life. Um, I don't even know. Well, um, Crown Chai's rooftop, hopefully, or their 60, I hope 63rd so, yeah. and 64th. Yeah, Crown Chai's amazing. I'm proud of, I'm proud of James, James and everything that awesome. they've done. Yeah. And, you know, just getting their Michelin star is a really big deal for that's him. That's true. Yeah. <coughs> that was um, announced just this week. Yeah. yeah. And that's a, that's, that's a big, that's a big testament to his hard work. Oh, they work so hard. James and Jeff were on the show last season. So if you didn't listen to that one, go back and listen. Um, some, some friends and clients that are opening sooner just opened Nordstrom's here in New York City has opened five dining establishments wow. within their new New York City flagship. So go and check that out. And a couple of chefs from Seattle are heading that up. So that's a pretty cool one. That's awesome. Yeah. Cool. That's all we got. That's all we got. Uh, special thanks again to Gavin for being here with us today. Um, We'll put a wrap-up of our show on tiltnyc.com, our blog, uh, in case you missed it today, in case you don't have enough time but want to hit on the, uh, the key points of our episode. Um, if you like today's episode uh, about moving markets, then next week we're talking about family business and how that can be good or how it can get hairy. Who knows? We love family uh, businesses here. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, follow us on Heritage Radio. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, anywhere else you get your podcast. We're at uh, We Are Opening Soon and at Till at NYC. Tell us how we can find you, Gavin. Uh, I'm on at Gavin Kaysen as uh, my Twitter and Instagram. And then the restaurant website is Stay Soigne, S-O-I-G-N-E.com. Stay Cool. Cool. Thanks so much. Thank Thanks you, guys. Coming. Appreciate it.
Opening soon is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter, enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You could also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.